0: I mean, I think I describe in the book how the motivations really fed each other symbiotically. So it was like the idea of this all having some greater purpose allowed me to push myself further in the way that I already wanted to so that I could stay with Adam, who I was by that point convinced was my soulmate and that I was on this journey where I I was the one who needed to change because true love requires transformation. I was the one, you know, opening up to non-monogamy. So this was my journey to go on. So it kind of made it have this external framework that I could imagine some sort of light at the end of the tunnel of, okay, if this is a a book one day or story, that means I have to get to the end of it. And there's only going to be like two ways out you know, leaving him or something and like, you know, being embarrassed that I couldn't do it or finally vanquishing all my jealousy and, you know, like becoming good at polyamory. (laughs) Mm.
1: Welcome to the Multiamory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily.
0: And I'm Dedeker.
2: We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past.
3: So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging casually dating or if you just do relationships differently we see you and we're here for you
1: On this episode of the Multiamory Podcast, we are joined by author and journalist Rachel Krantz to discuss her new book, Open, An Uncensored Memoir of Love, liberation and non-monogamy. Rachel Krantz is a journalist and one of the founding editors of Bustle, where she served as senior features editor for three years. Her work's been featured on NPR, The Guardian, Vox, Vice, and many other outlets. She's also the recipient of the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award, the Investigative Reporters and Editors Radio Award, the Edward R. Murrow Award, and the Peabody Award for her work as an investigative reporter with YR Media. That's a lot of rewards and
0: awards.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Rewarding awards. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, a great way to celebrate the book coming out. I really appreciate it. Yeah.
3: I wanted to take a couple minutes just to talk a little bit about origin stories. It's funny to see things coming full circle because the way that Rachel and I connected was, I think, 2016 when I was in the middle of the editing process for my book and I was basically just like broke, and writing stories because I was broke. And Rachel, it was when Rachel was editor at Bustle and you picked up a lot of my stuff. And I think that's how we got And I think I just felt really lucky that it seemed to hit at a time when you were also on this non-monogamous journey and also really engaged in these things and also really interested in the things that I have to say, as well as having really interesting things of yourself, of your own to say. And it's really wonderful to kind of see you also go on this journey and now have this book of your own. It's been a wild ride. I would, that's yeah. for me, just kind of witnessing from, from the outside. I'm sure it's been more wild for you living it. Yeah.
0: yeah, thank you so much. I feel the same way. And I mean, you're in this book and have been a friend to me at points on this journey. So it feels really special to be on the podcast. And I know I've also told you how Multiamory loomed large throughout my journey. And so it just feels very full circle to be on it is a little surreal, but also... <laughs> Quite satisfying.
3: (laughs) So let's get into your book itself, which is coming out today. And at the at the end of the episode, we'll talk a little bit more about where people can pick it up. But for all of our listeners who will not have had a chance to dive into your book yet and know your story yet, do you think you could sum it up in like
0: three sentences or so, (laughs) just real quick here? The best question. Yeah, no. I think that the best way to describe it is it is a reported memoir of the story of my first open relationship, which also happened to be my first dom-sub-relationship. And both of those things were relatively uncommunicated. So it's also Mm. a partial cautionary tale of what happens when you try to explore a lot of these things without having uh, a lot of direct, clear, respectful communication around them, kind of like the opposite of radar, I would say. But on that journey, I'm encountering and dating all kinds of people who are practicing different forms of non-monogamy. And so you kind of see me exploring and see other models of of people in non-monogamous relationships, all different forms.
3: Yeah. And something that I think it's important for our listeners to know is that, you know, this book is listed as a memoir, and that's very much what it is. But you also bring your background as a journalist to the memoir writing process. Can you talk a little bit about how this is maybe a little bit different from... Uh, your mom's memoir. Not <laughs> your mom's memoir, but like the generic <laughs> mom's, memoir. mom's memoir. <laughs> this is not your
0: mom's <laughs> memoir. This is not your mom's memoir. My mom's memoir would be interesting as well. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that I really brought both sensibilities and part of the main political statement of the book is that this is both an extremely personal, at times very erotic and explicit memoir, where I'm really like leaving none of myself protected. And it's very vulnerable in lots of moments where people will be like, oh my God, I can't believe she's writing this. Like, I can't believe she's admitting this. But it's also a story I spent, you know, five years reporting and put a ton of rigor into it as a journalist in terms of doing dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews, reading all the books, doing tons of research, and also just immersing myself in the story as an immersion journalist who is also living it at the same time. So I think, you know, in our culture, we tend to create these boxes for women, especially where it's like either you get to be a respectable professional journalist or other kind of respectable career person, or you're someone who talks about sex explicitly and talks about your feelings in extremely vulnerable detail. And what this book is challenging the reader to do is be like, nope, I'm both, so this book is both. Both Hmm. those things can coexist, because they do in most everyone.
3: Yeah, I think you you talked about that in your intro as well, of this is a little bit of an experiment of as someone who has this pile of rewards and awards, and then also is kind of turning the corner from your normal work of just really being vulnerable and really laying it all out there, you know, what, I guess, what the public does with that, with having to hold those two things at the same time.
0: Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, like you all, I feel, I think a certain responsibility to be as open as I can because I have so many privileges where At least I have the chance to try to make this part of my career. I don't have kids to lose. I'm not, you know, worried at this point about losing a job because I don't have a job to lose. All these civil protections that don't exist for non-monogamous people, not to mention that I'm, you know, white, cis, straight passing, thin, all these other things that make it less likely that I'm going to be as badly harassed as other people. I'll still be harassed, I'm sure, (laughs) But, you know, hopefully I am able to help do my tiny part to can, you know, help open up the conversation, because if it's so taboo for me to talk about this in basically one of the be- best positions possible, then what does that say about how it is for everyone else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Definitely.
1: So one thing that we wanted to ask you about, and it's something that we've been thinking about for ourselves as well, is this question of what is it that draws a person to non-monogamy and then how that might shift? Like, like you might have gotten into it for one reason and then stuck with it for a completely different reason. And so I was just curious, and maybe we could all even reflect on this, but how is that for you? What initially drew you to it and then how has that changed?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think I was... Familiar with the concept. Uh, An ex mailed Sex at Dawn to me after we broke up, saying it had really helped him and he hoped it would help me too. And,
1: you know, I resented the (laughs) passive aggressive implications,
0: (laughs) but I also totally devoured it with a very focused interest and it made a lot of sense to me and really shifted how I began to think about relationships. And I was like, of course I've been sold yet another capitalist, patriarchal narrative. That makes total sense. I also was a serial monogamous and would always end up feeling eventually trapped and bored in every relationship. And I was just hoping... That was part of what being in your 20s is and that I would grow out of it. So I was interested already and familiar with the concept of non-monogamy. I just wasn't sure how to go about practicing it. The idea made me nervous. No one I was with seemed experienced any more than I was or really mature enough to try it with. And so when I met Adam, he was, you know, much older than me, had experience with non-monogamous relationships, was incredibly intelligent and compelling. And uh, on our second date, before we even kissed, basically said, you know, I'm looking for a primary partner, someone to share my life with. But if you were with me, I would never restrict you. You could still fall in love with other people, have experiences with other people. I would just need to feel privileged and safe. And so I was like, oh, maybe this is my chance to explore this. And it went on from there hmm Yeah. Oh,
1: wow. And then, and then what kind of, what did that turn into for you? Like what kept you there?
0: Yeah. So at first I thought that was a great offer. We fell in love very, very quickly, intensely. I moved in, in weeks, which is, you know, was an wow. early yeah. red flag, but also, you know, at the time I thought, oh, I found it. I found my true love. It very much felt like a fairy tale experience I'd never felt so in love with someone in any and so also newly submissive in any relationship I'd always felt like I was the one in total control and this was very much the reverse and so I was nervous about the idea of non-monogamy I would start to feel myself get jealous when he would bring it up which he kept doing every few weeks so that I wouldn't kind of get comfortable in a delusion. And I would feel kind of mad at myself that that was my reaction. And he said, okay, how about I'll be monogamous until you allow otherwise you can just be non monogamous. And that was his way of demonstrating, like, I'm really serious about you. This is just sort of my philosophy It was the way he framed it. And you can explore. So then that meant, you know, Going to sex parties at first, he then confessed he was into hot wifing, which is, you know, for those who don't know, he never used that term, but it's basically another term for cuckolding, except Hmm. that cuckolding is actually more submissive, right? It's like men who enjoy maybe sitting in the corner and watching, or maybe they're not allowed to touch, whereas hot wifing is a fetish, as it's known, which can exist in all gender and sexual permutations in other forms. Other names, the hot husbanding, whatever else, means you enjoy participating and sort of the competitive aspect of it. So it's like this very gendered, but potentially sexy thing of like seeing another man, you know, with me and then also being with me. And then when the other man leaves, reclaiming me afterwards. So that's what we did for a while. And it was very much part of the dom sub play as well. And then about a year in, I decided to try opening it up on both sides. It basically didn't feel fair. And by that point, I also had seen how amazing this was, how it only reconfirmed my commitment to him and attraction to him. Every time I was given these freedoms, it made me kind of want to double down on what we were building because I was like, this is awesome. So I think I saw how even though I was scared, it would be, you know, really the only way he was going to consider staying with me long term was if I eventually afforded him these freedoms as well. And so that began the second leg of the journey. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes.
2: So you talk a lot in the book about how this relationship with Adam sort of culminated in this sort of sexual liberation for you, but it also presented some questions around what that exactly means, especially Mm -hmm. for women. So I wondered if you could sort of talk on that, you know, what you felt your sexual liberation was at the beginning of this journey versus where you feel you are now in the present.
0: Yeah a great question thank you for asking me to reflect on that I think that in the beginning I thought that sexual liberation I think I applied a little bit of like almost a relationship escalator mentality to it of like you just keep getting more and more liberated and eventually you're (laughs) gonna reach the point and you'll know you're Liberated, you'll just have like the most mind blowing, liberated orgasm. And like from then on, it'll be, you know, great. You'll be free. Or maybe when you meet, you know, your soulmate, like that, that allows you to explore complete liberation. And in a way, with Adam, it felt that way sometimes because he, he was very good at helping form the narrative of our relationship of like we were destined. And mm. And with him, I I was exploring things I'd always wanted to explore that I'd been too afraid to, including coming into my queerness, the non-monogamy. That was probably one of the biggest ways I began to feel more liberated. I felt more confident in having experiences with women. First at parties, I sort of gained more of a physical confidence. And then I eventually met someone who I dated. And I do think that already having the security of someone at home gave me a lot more confidence Hmm. to explore that. So in all those ways, trying new things, feeling more like, oh, I don't have to play out the script I've been sold. Like there's nothing wrong with being potentially insatiable. There's nothing wrong with me for having trouble with long-term monogamy. Maybe I get to write a different story. All of that was very liberating and things I carry with me. I think the main difference now is that I've also learned the lesson that sometimes saying no is the experience Mm -hmm. is the liberation that liberation doesn't have to be saying yes to everything or continuing to just push yourself and push yourself and push yourself to new extreme emotional heights, which is kind of my tendency just see how far I can go, how uncomfortable I can make myself that, you know in certain moments that might be liberating but also sometimes saying no to that and knowing what your boundaries are is also a form of liberation
3: yeah and i think that that ties really nicely with some a theme that we've explored on this show before when we're talking about things like sexual liberation and sex positivity that there's sort of this other school of thought of sex neutrality or of being critical of sex positivity. And you mentioned the fact that sometimes we can confuse liberation for, I say yes to everything, Mm. I'm down for everything. And in a conversation that you and I had, you talked about perceiving sometimes monogamous, monogamous women expressing some resentment around sex positivity, around increasing positivity toward non-monogamy as well. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, about how sometimes, ironically, increasing sexual liberation and positivity can sometimes hamper our own liberation.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the book is about how uh, seemingly opposing truths often coexist, (laughs) like both those things can be true at the same time sometimes, you know, like it's not good if non monogamy becomes yet another cool girl standard that you feel held to, or if it becomes another tool for coercion, or like you just need to be down or you're repressed, you know, like that is just another standard for people, usually women, to be holding themselves to in service of male pleasure, usually. So that's not a good thing. And I get that there would be resentment if non-monogamy is ever being used to do that. The same time, I think I really show in my story, in my journey, how it gets really complex and subtle, how some of that can be going on at the same time as it's a really good thing for me in my life to be exploring all this, at the same time as you see Adam sometimes coercing me. So it's very... Complex, and I just try to explore those complexities, and I think invite other people to do the same and I think that the more we can have these conversations in in nuanced ways that don't try to whitewash any one model or claim that anyone's perfect or that anything is perfect, the more there'll be hopefully acceptance for a wide array of approaches, yeah.
1: Yeah. See, so you also had a section in the book where you're having a conversation with your friend Aisha, and they say sexual liberation is still really unavailable to male and mask people. And we don't talk about that except in some butch communities. We talk about masculinity in terms of damage, violence, toxicity. We don't have enough of a conversation about how to help free men and masks from that and provide loving alternatives. How, how does that like how did that conversation affect your thinking around those things and how is that how have you seen that since then
0: Yeah I I think that very much affected me in the writing of this book to approach I guess when I was describing what ended up happening with Adam in a way that hopefully avoids blame or simple categorizations of Of kind of villain and victim, and instead recognizes what what is the suffering of men under patriarchy as well. What drives someone to potentially, you know, as the story goes on, want to control someone else's behavior and mind? And how could it be their own disowned emotional vulnerability that's driving that? And to try to really dig into that with psychologists. So you know, throughout it's really a narrative memoir. That's reading as a, as a story, but you have psychologists and other people commenting in the footnotes or kind of woven in of how this is indicative of of larger trends, other things they see. And so I think hearing Aisha say that was just kind of a reminder that even though I'm describing me and Adam as individuals, it's not really about us at the end of the day it's about behaviors and and even if i am describing him or me it's always going to be an approximation not just because of the form but because everyone is constantly changing so it's really more us as sort of the characters in this fable of what happens when you try to explore all these things and push against these norms but you're still under patriarchy, you're still under capitalism, you're still under these systems. And more than that, this very gender normative power dynamic, where the man is extremely dominant and the woman is extremely submissive, and that there's nothing wrong with that, we can explore all the ways that that can be chosen and and pleasurable and explored in a consensual way. But what goes wrong when that's the default? And when it Mm. becomes below the line and taboo to even talk about in the relationship, because we also find it kind of taboo to talk about that in general, right? And in society, how that plays out. So I very much view us as this kind of parable for how all these things are always at play, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's almost like this sense that, I mean, I think that on this show, we're constantly, and I know when I do interviews, or when people ask us questions, we're constantly trying to push against this narrative that non-monogamy is automatically more enlightened, hmm. more progressive, more feminist, just by default. It definitely can be all those things. And one could maybe make the argument that it'll probably be more fun and cool if it is all those things. Yeah. But it seems like you're really laying out the fact that because of the air that we breathe, like all the things that are baked into the air that we breathe, it's like we can still, we can be making choices to have more progressive sexual relationships or romantic relationships or friendships, but there's still a lot of pit traps around. Of course.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's human beings, you know, like who are flawed and there's going to be just like with monogamy, there's going to be any Wide array of every kind of relationship outcome and permutation from totally awesome to abusive. It's going to be the same thing with us. You know, it just depends on the people and their dynamic and the way they approach it. So I, I try to remind people of that throughout, hopefully. But of course, because we're so marginalized and there's so few mainstream representations, it's very tempting to make generalizations of like, oh, see, this is what all non-monogamous people are like. So I just try to call that out as much Mm. as possible in the book to kind of keep checking the reader that this is just my story and this is what happened. This is not fiction. This is not a how-to guide. This is what happened. Mm. So I'm not going to be dishonest about it, even if it doesn't always make us look good in the immediate Mm.
3: Yeah, and I mean that leads us to our next topic here, which is talking about, you know, the abusive dynamics and toxic dynamics that can show up in non-monogamy. And on our show before, we've talked about the fact that sometimes non-monogamous relationships can become fertile ground for particular types of coercion or particular types of manipulation or for emotional abuse. And and so, I mean, if our listener hasn't gathered already, that's part of your story, right? Is kind of documenting this arguably slow, subtle decline into these more toxic dynamics. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering, I mean, do you think that there's a special flavor of emotional abuse that shows up in non-monogamy that's different from how it may present in monogamous relationships?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I can only really speak to my experience, but I think that certainly... Okay, so you have jealousy in monogamous relationships is very dangerous. That's the first thing to say. Like, Obviously, monogamy is a ripe breeding ground for abuse because that's where most of it happens, right? And like most women who are assaulted, it's by partner. And over half of women who are killed in the United States, it's a partner. And 12% of those homicides are associated with jealousy. So that's just to put that out there first of like monogamy is also clearly and jealousy, obviously a ripe ground for all these behaviors because you can use jealousy as an excuse. of I am going to lock you up. Why were you talking to him? What are you doing? You know, obviously
3: it's but, been used as an excuse in court cases also, mm-hmm. like as a straight yeah. up defense. Yeah. There's a big precedent for that. Yes.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think on the flip side with non-monogamy, you're going to have the same kinds of, you know, personalities that might be prone to this kind of controlling or abusive behavior, spinning it as this is just in your mind. If you're having trouble with jealousy, it's more evolved to be non-monogamous if you could just be more open um, and free and loving towards me. You wouldn't have trouble with anything I'm doing. So kind of the reframing of any difficulty the, or complaints the partner might be having with behaviors that are happening as a weakness or a lack of being evolved on the other person's part, I think might be a flavor that definitely showed up in, in my dynamic and that I've heard from other people since has been relatable to them in certain non-monogamous relationships they had.
3: Yeah. I I think that in a lot of non-monogamous communities and relationships, there is this particular value around, I, I guess I would call it emotional responsibility, which as a value on its own is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it is good to own our emotions and not just completely project them or blame our partners for causing them or things like that. But that's the one that I see, I feel like, and I've also seen this even in straight up like couples therapists working with monogamous couples, that sometimes there can be this very extreme, almost like emotional libertarianism of mm, yeah. your emotions are 100% mm. on you and it doesn't at all matter what your partner is doing and it's all on you to, to fix it. Right.
0: Yeah. And, I, and you're even quoted in the book, Dedeker, about, you know, how you see coercion play out. Maybe sometimes specifically could look like someone feeling pressured to go through with a threesome or something like that because they feel like they'll ruin the night for everyone if they don't. Feeling like they don't have a choice in being non-monogamous if they're not going to have the partner withdraw from them or punish them otherwise. So really feeling like you have to be down or I'm going to walk away from you immediately is another way it could show up. And of course, it can show up in again in the reverse of a non-monogamous person feeling coerced to be monogamous. Yeah.
2: So to kind of continue along this thread, you talk about gaslighting a lot in your book, and I found it really interesting because you laid out sort of specific behaviors that your partner did that were sort of along the trajectory of what like classic gaslighting looks like. I uh, Although... You also discussed self-gaslighting, which was an interesting concept and something that I would like you to elaborate on a little bit. Like, what does that really look like for you? And what did you mean when you were discussing that in the book?
0: Well, I think that the way I was able to describe how gaslighting works was because I recorded so much of it. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that's very hard to explain It's kind of a thrown around term, like, and because you internalize the other person's opinions about it, like a part of me still even rolls my eyes at it inwardly, like using it because his voice is still there. Hmm. So a part of what gaslighting is, is that their voice becomes your interior voice. It's like basically manipulating someone by psychological means into questioning their own sanity, where it gets incredibly confusing is that often the other person who is gaslighting you systemically might not be even conscious of it themselves and so they might just be incredibly convinced that they know what's best for you that your fear or whatever they perceive to be as your undesirable behaviors are kind of holding you back or controlling you and that if you could just adhere to their reality, their perspective, the way they think it would be best, you would be happy and they could just love you the way they wanted. So that's kind of one of the cornerstones of gaslighting. And so as you fall deeper into that and the person kind of pushes that narrative consciously or unconsciously and you believe it more and more, there becomes really hardly any difference between the gaslighting and the self-gaslighting. Most of it becomes internalized because you hear, if you're saying, wait, I'm not feeling like this is okay the way he's talking to me right now, you immediately hear his voice in your head slash your voice. There's not really a difference anymore. Arguing with you exactly why that's incorrect or why you're being oversensitive or why you basically shouldn't, trust it, your own instincts. So yeah, by the end, there was no difference really in, but I guess the self gaslighting was the constant undermining of, of oneself and one's own Mm. feelings.
2: Do you feel like you have a sense of potentially, when is it good to question our own thoughts and feelings versus when is it potentially a sign of like an unhealthy dynamic when, you know, thoughts and feelings are questioned by another person or by yourself? I don't know. You've been through so much here. Yeah, I I don't know if you can uh, speak to that a bit.
0: Thank you. Thanks for asking that, because that's one of the central points I hope Mm -hmm. to get across to people in the book, and that I kind of come to towards the end of it, meet someone who's still one of my top mentors advisors now a buddhist monk named Tashi Nima and and he kind of helps me begin to disentangle these things because Another thing that was confusing was that Adam introduced a lot of Buddhist thought that really resonated with me and and still does as sort of another argument for why I needed to adhere to whatever he wanted. Mm -hmm. Basically, kind of that argument that non attachment is a better way to love, that, you know, your feelings are just in your own fabrications. And if you can just detach from them more, then you get to decide how you're going to feel. And there's a degree of of truth in that. But what Tashi helped me see is, okay, it's good to examine your own initial emotional reactions and thoughts to learn to meditate so that you can better observe them. The distinction is someone else should never be telling you what should and shouldn't be in your mind. That's Mm -hmm. a major red flag. That's very different, right? So... That's one thing. If someone's saying no, you shouldn't be thinking or feeling that. Major red flag. Even if they're potentially correct, that okay, you should take a step back and and look at it. That someone saying that is very different than saying no. Your feelings are wrong. They're illegitimate. All those kinds of things that characterize gaslighting and emotional abuse. So I think I think yeah, that's kind of the main distinction I keep in mind now. Sure examine my thoughts and feelings, but don't discredit them as unreal. Another helpful distinction I'll just say quickly is the Buddhist teacher Tara Brock, who's been very helpful to me, and she's also a psychologist. She has a distinction, she says, as real, but not true. So Mm. things can be real, but not true, right? And it's that same Mm -hmm. distinction. of You could be having feelings of jealousy and even sit with them for a moment and say, okay, can I start to parse out how this is grounded in, you know, things that maybe aren't true. Fears that I'm I'm unlovable and that my partner's gonna leave me tomorrow, things that you know that are not true. But can I look at that without discrediting my feelings as unreal or something I shouldn't be having in the first place? Or is my partner saying that because it's not true, it's not even a real or valid thing Fish to be experiencing.
1: Yeah, that's such a great distinction to make. And yeah. I think I like how succinctly you worded that, because that's something we do talk about a fair amount on this show about that, like your feelings are real, but that doesn't mean they're based in fact, right? Like right. feelings aren't facts, but that doesn't mean they're not real. And that's that is really, that's really really well put. So thank you for that. Yeah. I also, just something that you said really struck me was how you talked about how clearly... You know, non monogamy is a part of your life now, and also Buddhism is. Mm-hmm. And both of those things came from someone who was abusive and mm-hmm. used both of those things as a form of coercion. And I think that is, I think, just something worth taking a moment for everyone to kind of recognize, right? Mm-hmm. That I think a lot of us in the polyamory community, just in general, it's like, yeah, we've been very influenced by some thoughts by people who maybe were abusers, but that doesn't mean that those contributions weren't valuable to us, right? And then even in for the three of us in our personal lives, some pretty formative concepts early on in multi-amory and sort of creating our own understanding of non-monogamy came from a partner who was really shitty and abusive to, Uh to Dedeker particularly, and also to Emily. And so, but it's like, we still got something from that. And it doesn't kind of take away from the value that we got, you know, from, from that thing, even if it was kind of, wish it had a better source. Right. But that's Mm. great to still have that value.
0: Yeah. And I would just add that I, I don't think, abuser has to be a fixed identity either. I, I prefer to speak in it, of it in terms of behaviors. So everyone can, in the book, I also exhibit abusive behaviors at times in reaction to being kind of, yes, consistently verbally and emotionally abused, but that doesn't change that I was also going back with sometimes name calling towards him or any of these other things that are also abusive behaviors. And and I think also that Adam or anyone else is not fixed in in being an abuser with a capital A. They might just have abusive patterns that they can also work on, on learning. And I think that that's also part of what kept me in the dynamic feeling pretty isolated a lot of the times was sometimes the dialogue didn't always acknowledge that. And the fact that People stay in these dynamics because the person who is abusing you sometimes or gaslighting you or whatever it is, is hardly doing that all the time. They're Mm. not shitty all the time. They also often really love you. They're not doing it. They're not loving you very well a lot of the times, but they're trying and you fell in love with that. And there's a lot of things about them that are awesome too, often and very compelling still. And so, yeah, there's so many things that I will always be so grateful to Adam for, and I wouldn't take back any of it because I think I got exposed to all these wonderful ideas. It was just a matter of needing to learn the lesson that I didn't need someone else to tell me what was correct and what I should be thinking or feeling about any of these ideas.
3: Yeah, I, I just wanted to highlight something that you said basically about, you know, these identities or or these patterns not necessarily being fixed. And I think our culture has such a hard time when it comes to narratives about toxic dynamics or unhealthy relationship dynamics, whether it's the level of writing a memoir or just the level of telling your friends that our culture so encourages us to be like, find the bad guy, find the good guy. Mm -hmm. And that's the way our brains work. They evolved Mm -hmm. in that particular way to just kind of create some quick categories so we can make some quick decisions and we can survive. But I think that is the really frustrating thing is that that's just the story that we seem to be craving is Mm -hmm. identify the bad guy for me. Okay, they're totally bad. I can throw them and everything associated with them in the garbage. Identify the survivor or the victim. Okay, they're 100% totally good. Did nothing wrong. Absolutely blameless. Didn't contribute to that dynamic whatsoever. Like they were just you know, the princess to be rescued, ironically, I think is the way that we (laughs) think about it. And I think that holds back so many people from sharing their stories or sharing stories like this because we have this myth that... If I did anything that was less than good behavior, that means maybe I'm to blame or I'm, I'm equally as culpable as the Mm -hmm. person who hurt me. And I just so appreciate that in telling this story, you're willing to be vulnerable and like take ownership of like, I did some shitty things too. Mm -hmm. You know, it really wasn't great. But because I think even that just holds so many people back from being able to just be honest about what happened. Mm -hmm. So we're going to keep going with this conversation. We're going to take a quick break to talk about the ways that you can best support this show to help us keep this information coming for free. This episode is brought to
1: you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself...
2: Call, dot or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
3: And we're back. So another theme that you explore a lot in the book is the spiritual component of this, both in the sense of exploring some Buddhist concepts, but also, I think, separate from Buddhist concepts, just the general journey of personal growth and really trying to sift through What's actually the good stuff here versus what's the not so good stuff. And you do touch on spiritual bypassing quite a bit. And we've talked about that on this show before, but we want to hear from you. I mean, how do you define spiritual bypassing? How did that show up for you?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and Dedica, I love that you guys talk about it on the show, and I think you have in, in the Smart Girls Guide also. I think you talked about it. Oh, it's kind of well-practiced at
3: Spiritual Bypass. Yes. And the reason why. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I think for me, it showed up as getting high every day, <laughs> mm. um, mm-hmm. which is, was one of the unhealthy behaviors for me anyway. I'm not saying it's unhealthy for everyone to get high every day, but for me, it was a way of just kind of making it so that I could be okay with whatever was going on and kind of rise above it and and look at it from the outside as if it were all this interesting story I could dissociate from. And kind of the idea that I would often just say to myself, you know, if I was having trouble with anything, other people have real problems. Look how lucky you are. You have this great life and this, you know, great partner that people would love to be with. And Just basically rise above, rise above, (laughs) and non attachment, you know, like everything's (laughs) impermanent. Just Mm -hmm. lots of that kind of stuff. And all those things are true. Everything is impermanent, you know. Other people do have worse problems, but, and sometimes detaching a little bit can help you examine your beliefs in a way that could be helpful. But when you're basically gaslighting yourself, numbing yourself, prematurely uh, skipping over feeling your feelings by just kind of, yeah, spiritually rising above them, that's that's probably spiritually bypassing.
3: You you just mentioned just briefly that, you know, for you, it was kind of, you know, rising above and trying to look at this like it's a story with how, with some interesting aspects of it. And I know that I think the kind of funny thing about reading this story is that fairly like maybe I don't know what the halfway point is of your journey but to me like like halfway through the book is when already you've been approached to start thinking about writing a book hmm. you know it's like it wasn't like you went through this whole experience and experienced this relationship and this journey and then you got to the end of it and then it was like oh now I'll start thinking about writing the book do you think knowing that oh this might be a book project do you think that 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 helped you have healthy distance from it? Or do you think that it, it became another form of spiritual bypassing at times? Both, both, yeah.
0: absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I describe in the book how the motivations really fed each other symbiotically. So it was like the idea of this all having some greater purpose allowed me to push myself further in the way that I already wanted to so that I could stay with Adam, who I was by that point convinced was my soulmate. And mm. that I was on this journey where I I was the one who needed to change because true love requires transformation. I was the one, you know, opening up to non-monogamy. So this was my journey to go on. So it kind of made it have this external Framework that I could imagine some sort of light at the end of the tunnel of okay if this is a a book one day or a story that means I have to get to the end of it and there's only going to be like two ways out you know leaving him or something and like you know being embarrassed that I couldn't do it or finally vanquishing all my jealousy and you know like becoming good at polyamory mm. <laughs> and uh, yeah I think that. It just also was a coping mechanism because as I increasingly began to lose more and more trust in my own capabilities, my own judgment, my own sanity, as I was no longer sober most days, recording was pretty much the only thing I could do to have some sort of sense of like solid reality outside of his. So I could sense, I used to like, be a more confident, assured person. What's happening to me? This is interesting. The journalist in me, the, the person who was beginning to really practice, sitting with my feelings, meditating a little bit, looking in my mind, was like, okay, I am very caught right now. I have no idea how I'm going to like untangle all this, but one day I might want to be able to look back on what, actually happened because i sure as hell am not to be able to remember a lot of the specifics of it because i'm you know stoned all the time and because his way of framing things was so masterful hmm. so i just began to record it with his consent to his credit i began to record all our couples therapy sessions all my sessions with kathy labriola different, you know, state of the unions we would have together, arguments. I recorded so much and with other people along the way too. And it just became this way of feeling like I had some sort of greater purpose to what was increasingly feeling like a journey I was sinking in.
2: I find that so interesting because in... Moments in my own relationships when things are taken strangely, or you know, something starts going awry. I'm like, fuck, I wish that I had this recorded because (laughs) I'm hearing something said back to me that in no way encapsulates what I meant to say to this person, Mm -hmm. and yet they're taking it in such a way. I wish that I could rewind the tape and be able to be like no wait there it is again let's work through this or whatever and so I find that so incredibly fascinating that you did that because I think so many of us could really find that useful in our relationships and yet it's difficult to you know wait I'm going to turn on the recorder right now in the middle of this conversation I
0: definitely don't recommend it like i I think it was a product of, you know, being in that dynamic first. First of all, it was my predilections as a journalist. I was already writing about my life, doing a lot of experimental um, immersion journalism at Bustle. So it was already kind of my modus operandi. Mm-hmm. But also he was so often saying, no, you're remembering things wrong. Exactly. Or he would say in an argument, repeat yeah. back to me what I said. That's not what I said. That was one of his favorite lines. No, you repeat back to me like subtext didn't matter. All that mattered were the exact words. And at the Mm -hmm. same time, Me Too was happening. And you know, later on the Kavanaugh hearings, and I had internalized that as a woman in our culture, I need to gather evidence if I want to ever be believed. It's not enough to live the experience or to claim you remember it. I need to have hard evidence because look at this, no one's believing even you know these women who have transcripts and their therapists are testifying that they were talking about it decades ago no one's believing them so I need to have actual tape with the therapist Mm -hmm. you know like and it wasn't really because I was intent on exposing Adam in any way it was more just that I think I had a sense of there was going to come a point where I was going to be on some other end of this and I was going to want to understand how this had happened. I was going to want to retrace my steps and and see what the patterns were and and how you can slowly kind of transform in so many ways, not just the losing my own sense of reality, because it wasn't just that, but also just, oh my God, all of a sudden I'm I'm like into all these things that I wasn't into before. Mm. I'm like apparently completely omnivorous in all these ways I had no idea. Like I was opening so rapidly and so much that, yeah, I just, I wanted to live it, but I also wanted to, I guess, hold on to it and be able to make sense of it afterwards. But it's not, it's not a good way to live. I'm, I don't plan to continue <sighs> recording all my relationships <laughs> in life, you know.
3: Well, maybe. I mean, you could time. also just be a, per, a precursor to our future lives where absolutely everything is documented. It, is recorded, so it seems yeah. like that's the trend we're going in. And so maybe someday we will have that blessing and curse of we get out of a relationship. Okay, now let me sit down and watch the movie of this relationship to see if I can understand what actually it's happened. Black Mirror
0: episode. Actually. Yes. Yep, yeah, very is, sci-fi. Yeah, sure for that's us. what I was just thinking <laughs> of.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the thing I realized, oh, even if I hadn't recorded all these things, the way we live now is so much more on the record, just text messages, emails, dating app messages. There's just, there was so much.
1: I love that in this conversation that we've been having, something that also comes through in your book is that you do really value the the nuance and like trying not to fall into some of these narratives about there's always someone who's 100% the good guy and one who's 100% the bad guy and how that how falling into those traps doesn't serve anyone right it you know it hurts victims hurts perpetrators like hurts hurts everyone like that's not making for good conversation and something that related to that something that's come up for us and i think most people in the non-monogamous community which is getting caught in this bind between wanting to have a bigger variety of stories about polyamory and non-monogamy, including ones that talk about abuse or that talk about coercion or just general unhealthy relationships. And yet, at the same time, because there are relatively so few of those stories compared to the 10 gazillion monogamous stories that can be terrible, can be delightful, can be the whole range that it's like, if we tell one bad story, there's this fear that the rest of the world's going to jump on that and be like, see, even the polyamorous people admit it's shitty and people are awful. Mm-hmm. So it's like we're, there's this fear, right? This scare of sharing those sorts of stories that would make all of us look bad. And so I was just curious, what was that part of the process like for you in terms of your own concerns about that, of misrepresenting the community or, you know, betraying your fellow non-monogamous people <laughs> by telling yeah. this story or something like that?
0: Oh my gosh. Well, you just see me grappling with it in the book, you know, in my conversations with Aisha and, and other friends throughout. I'm worried about this even before I'm sure I'm going to write a book I'm like preemptively worried how is this going to represent non-monogamy how is it going to represent the kink community because it's also a depiction of that gone wrong in certain ways or not practiced in the poster child way I mean I think that in the end I sort of choose to believe that it will hopefully do more good than harm and that basically we're not going to have mainstream conversations and acceptance and nuanced depictions unless we admit to the ways we're also completely flawed human beings. And obviously there's lots of people doing that like you guys, but this was just, you know, one more way by simply telling the truth of what happened in its nuance that I could Hopefully, complicate the narrative, and in so doing, make it more relatable to most people. Because I've seen a lot of like initial comments from you know advanced readers who who review it on Goodreads or whatever, saying, "Oh, I was expecting this to be another like polemic on why non monogamy is so great," mm. and and instead, like it was this story that made me think about all these things and like was really nuanced and all, and I was great. That makes me so happy to hear because I get that tendency to be like, I don't even want to hear about you because you think you're perfect. And I guess I'm sort of a little comfortable with that too because of, or familiar with it because of, like Emily, I'm a vegan and I've Mm -hmm. been a vegan activist for many years now. And that's another group that people are immediately, I mean, more sometimes really angry or antagonistic towards because they feel that same kind of cognitive dissonance or disavowed things in themselves that make them uncomfortable. And so, yeah, there's a lot of whitewashing that I was also complicit in in the beginning of saying, oh, it'll make your health perfect. Or, you know, it's not an eating disorder. There's no eating disorders here. And again, of course, because vegans are humans, sometimes they're going to have eating disorders. And because Mm. non-monogamous people are humans, they're going to sometimes be in not perfect relationships, and are having to claim to be in perfect relationships is another restrictive box that I think we only get to break out of by being more and more honest and vulnerable, potentially, because then we're human and relatable.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the book, you—I mean, specifically in this section, you're talking about polyamorous people. But you know, you ask the question, why should polyamorous people have to prove they're only in happy relationships in order to be respected? And Mm -hmm. I guess the same thing with veganism is like, why does Mm -hmm. someone who makes a particular diet choice or living choice have to prove this is 100% good for you? Mm -hmm. The sacrifices that you're going to make are only going to bring good things to your life in order for that to be respected. And I guess that's just another example of the... The broader dualistic black and white thinking that we're also comfortable with being just being applied in many, many different situations.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you see all different marginalized groups go through these stages, right? And of media representation. So we're pretty early on now, monogamous people and vegans. And <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty early on where you hardly ever see us. If we do, it's like a joke or it's some brunt of a joke or a bad thing. And, you know, I think that used to be true for queer people. That used to be true for people of color in in movies. And and then you sort of had the stages where they're deciding, oh, okay, you're allowed to be a character now. And first you're a sidekick. And then in the first depictions of when you get to be the hero, we're so self-conscious that you're going to call us discriminatory now that this hero has to be perfect. And they're not flawed because we don't want to be called, you know, homophobic or racist or sexist or any of these things the female superhero has to be just like the man and like you know all these things have become their own boxes but are understandable stages but now we're at a place where because there have been incrementally more and more increasingly complex stories we can have a gay villain we can have a hopefully female anti-hero and you know like that's real equality really yeah, you. I wish
3: I pulled this quote, but you do have this wonderful quote in the book when you're talking about queerness and about how also idealization and putting mm-hmm. a particular practice or a particular sexuality or a particular type of relationship on a pedestal can be just as tokenizing mm-hmm. and fetishizing and appropriative and harmful as as when we're approaching it from a more, more negative space, which I, I feel like maybe we're on the cusp of understanding that broadly in our culture, but Mm -hmm. we're not quite there yet. It still feels like, okay, the result, you know, the the way that we're going to undo all this harm done is to go completely the opposite direction and go into full on (laughs) idealization of whoever it is that we're trying to, you know, heal this harm with.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think the idealization is usually more harmful than the actively negative or discriminatory Mm -hmm. attitudes, but yeah, I do think it seems to go in stages, right of like it's like, we hate you, OK, like, and now in the middle, like you get to be this kind of inhuman, perfect, you know, tokenized, non-real-dimensional character, and then hopefully, as there's more and more acceptance, you're a multi-dimensional human being.:
3: Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Wow. Well, Rachel, this has been a really amazing conversation. I feel like we could discuss so much regarding your book and just non monogamy in general for a really long time. But we are running close to time, although we are going to continue the conversation in our bonus episode for patrons. I am interested where can people find more of you and your work out there?
0: Yeah, thank you so much. This has been so fun. And yeah, I could talk to you all for hours as well. So you can find Open, and Uncensored Memoir of Love, Liberation, and Non-Monogamy, wherever books are sold online or in your local bookstore. There's also an Audible version, which is narrated by me. So that's fun. And you can get that. And yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at my name, at Rachel Krantz.
3: Yeah. And Rachel's book comes out today, right in this moment, right when you're listening to this episode. So, so come on down and don't (laughs) delay. And so we're going to be staying on with Rachel for our bonus episode. We're going to be talking a little bit more about the writing process. We're going to be looking at how we tackle storytelling when it involves people who've heard us. And then we're also going to keep having a discussion about Rachel's conversations with the Buddhist monk Tashi (laughs) about non-monogamy. And we want to hear from you what does liberation mean to you? You can find that question and submit your response on our Instagram stories this week. The best place to share your thoughts on this episode with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and you can join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com/slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram multi is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Bavanetta. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenewerk and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on MultiAmory.com.